Hello and welcome to another episode of Sensational She Geek Live from Yancey Street. Today is Friday, June 18th, 2021, and this is episode 22B. Thank you for tuning in as usual. The main event, of course, I'm sure what most people tuning in are looking for this week is going to be the discussion of Loki episode 2. It was obviously a really fun episode, but there are some things that are going to get kind of serious when we talk about this, um, potential things that could be happening. Uh, then after we go through the second Loki episode, I have this week's comic book picks. The picks this week consist of The Mighty Valkyries number 3, Demon Days Mariko number 1, Luna number 5, The Many Deaths of Layla Star number 3, Planet Size X-Men number 1, Sonya Versal number 5, Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow, and then a light um, bitch session about Fantastic Four number 33 that I'll probably slip up and say a few cuss words in, so just be aware of that. Uh, and then we have a very brief comment on Superman and Lois episode 10, uh, before news of Marvel's Dark Ages. I have talked about this series, how it was supposed to come out. I have asked over and over again if anybody has news on it. It was supposed to come out December 2020, and then it just kind of never, we never heard anything after that. Um, and it's finally back, so we'll talk about that a little bit. We also talk about the future of Castlevania, because it does have a future, which is exciting. And then finally, we'll wrap things up with a fun discussion of superheroes and their partners, which was in the trending topic of uh, comic discussion this week. If you were aware of it, you know what I'm talking about. And finally, tomorrow is Juneteenth. And since it is a federal, well, even if it wasn't a federal holiday, I would I'll still be, um, I'll, I'll go through and I'll talk a little bit about that. I'll do my, my best explanation of what Juneteenth is and why it matters. Um, if you are somebody who does not understand why that's something we need to have around, I encourage you to stick around and listen to the end of the episode or skip ahead or whatever. Um, because it, it is something that if, if you learn about it, you kind of understand why it's necessary. Um, and I think that's something that we all kind of just, just educate yourselves. You know, you have questions about these things, educate yourself and that's how you answer your questions. Um, so I'll talk about Juneteenth at the end of the episode a little bit. Um, to start off, though, of course, my social media, if you would like to find me online, my website is sensationalshegeek.weebly.com, which is um, not updated as often as I would like to, but I do put my podcast notes up on it as often as I can remember to, um, and that is for anyone who is hearing impaired or who just doesn't like the sound of my voice who would like to still follow along with the current events happening in the week, or twice a week, I suppose. Uh, you, I have all the notes that I take to kind of go off of for my podcast so that I don't get too off track and can't find my way back, at least. Um... So that is on my website, as well as reading lists. I have the complete reading list with commentary of exactly what happens in every episode for Madeline Pryor, as well as Clea, uh, if you like those. And I have partially finished ones of, gosh, probably 10 other characters. So uh, check that out if you're a fan of comic book female characters. And then uh, on Instagram, I am Anna with the comics, because that is my name and I have the comics. And on Twitter, I am Savage She Geek because Sensational was too many letters. Um, and then, like I always say, there's the TikTok, but I don't, I don't really use it, so it's not really a point in going there. Um, and this podcast is available everywhere that podcast stream, besides Pandora, so uh, that includes YouTube. And on my YouTube, which is Sensational She Geek, again, um, you can go there and find some things that I have reviewed, including... Uh, action figures. I haven't put the Wonder Woman one up yet. 
Uh, Mezco Wonder Woman, I did, I do have her. I haven't completed that review because I kept getting interrupted with the first half. Um, I gotta set it back up and finish it. Hopefully I'll do that today. <laughs> um, it's been a very busy couple of weeks. Um, but in any case, that is what is going on. That is how you can find me online. And let's go ahead and get started with this episode now that I've kind of gone on long enough about everything else. We will start off with Loki episode two. Um, really good stuff here. This is a really fun episode. It's obviously going to be fun with the cast of people and characters who we have in it. Um, lots of scenes of Loki and Mobius in their team jackets, which is awesome because they do have those figures coming out. Um, I Somebody online was... Loki, back of Loki's jacket says Variant, and somebody online was going, OMG, if they put Variant on the back of his figure, OMG, of course they're going to. That's part of his costume. Why wouldn't they put that on... It's... It's part of the costume. <laughs> um, but now I, I, I don't really care too much for the Loki one. Uh, but the Mobius one I would like because who the hell would not want an Owen Wilson on their toy shelf? Who cares about the character, man? It's Owen Wilson on your toy shelf. That's pretty hilarious. <laughs> um, there, There is a good amount, you know, fun buddy cop stuff basically is kind of what goes on for a little bit of this. A uh, good amount of talk about next event, which is still really important to note because um, Nexus events are, you know, it's all tied up in a number of uh, potential first appearances for the MCU that could be coming, including Mephisto, which is partially a joke, but not really, and Kang, <laughs> um, which is, he's more likely since they did announce his casting, he's going to be the main, well, he's going to be a main character in Ant-Man Quantumania, or Ant-Man and the Wasp, excuse me. Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania, um, which I believe they're currently filming. I know Evangeline Lilly has had her costume fitting for the Wasp, um, and I know that they announced the casting for Kang for that movie some time ago. I believe it was Disney Investor Day, if not even before that, um, in 2020. Um, so we've known about this being an official casting for a while. So if, if anybody's going to show up and this is more likely to be Kang because he's been Kang established as the guy playing Kang. Um, so they could easily pull him into anything pretty much as soon as they made that announcement or even prior to it. Um, less likely or more likely than Mephisto. Plus, um, the judge, um, Kugumbatha Ra, I believe is her name. I'm probably saying it wrong. I apologize if anybody knows how to say it better. Tell me. Um, uh, she plays the judge who is, uh, her character is kind of tied up in a relationship off and on with him in a weird way, uh, with Kang. So that is another reason that it would make sense for him to pop up in this. Um, there's, there's gotta be some kind of surprise appearance. I'm, I'm kind of thinking we haven't really had, let's think we had Falcon and the Winter Soldier didn't really have any surprise appearances like that. Um... We thought there was, we, we all thought Mephisto was going to show up in WandaVision. Um, and then we all look like fools doubting this witch, doubting this woman could be a villain. Of course she could be a villain. Um, and then, uh, so yeah, we haven't had any big, we, we're all still waiting for some kind of big reveal. We're all still expecting it to happen. And I, I don't know, maybe I'm foolish for even thinking maybe Kang will show up here, but... It's fun to talk about. It's fun to guess, right? <laughs> uh, a lot of this episode, it was spent with our version of Loki, you know, trying to figure out what this other version of himself was up to. 
which is a very complicated idea because, you know, uh, Loki thinks about what Loki would do, but then Loki knows what Loki would do, so Loki wouldn't do that. But then since he's Loki, he knows what that Loki wouldn't would know that, and so he wouldn't do that. And so you get it. It's this constant circle of logic that who knows where it where it stops <laughs> uh, but basically as he he spends some time in libraries and looking at his files and things and uh, or single fi- file singular <laughs> is all he had access to um, and he eventually figures out that the variant that they're looking for is hiding in apocalypses um, which are times that um, a place would be destroyed sorry about that my AC cut on for a second um, the apocalypses are times that a place is going to be entirely destroyed, and that part of the timeline is just going to stop existing, such as Pompeii, which is the example that we're given in the show, where Loki and Mobius go to test this theory. So they go and they see if they can... Basically, Loki just jumps up and says, I am Loki of Asgard, and I do whatever, and he says ridiculous stuff, and uh, obviously in modern clothes, in... Uh, ancient times in Pompeii um, and and Mobius is standing there looking at his little device seeing if this what they're doing here in the past is affecting the timeline which he discovers that it doesn't so that kind of checks out their theory that lo- this um, variant Loki that they're searching for must be hiding in a in various apocalypses because um, it's it's where they can hide and do whatever they want and it won't affect the timeline and so the TVA wouldn't be able to see them doing it, you know? Um, so that's that's kind of how they figured that out. And the apocalypse that they end up finding the variant in, um, in this case, is actually... It was some flyover state um, that gets hit with... I want to say Minnesota. It's probably wrong. That gets hit with a tornado and all the people staying in the uh, the tornado shelter, they all perish. Um, so that is, they figure out that's where she is because nothing that she does there is going to affect the timeline because it's all going to get wiped away anyway. Um, so then when Loki does eventually find the variant, um, they are in that facility with the people um, or nearby there or something uh, with a tornado about to hit and kill everybody and they have set up a bunch of timeline, timeline reset bombs, which uh, we saw them a couple of times earlier in the episode, and I think earlier in the first episode, uh, where they set them off and it takes a certain area, a certain spans of area back in time a certain amount. They would send these time reset bombs, um, they would put them off like how it was the 80s at a uh, Renaissance Festival, and Lady Loki uh, fought the TVA there, or excuse me, <laughs> the Loki, the the mysterious Loki fought the TVA there. Um, so, to kind of wipe away any effect that may have had on the timeline, they did the timeline reset, wiped away all the evidence that they were ever there, pretty much, um, and basically anybody who was in there is memory of seeing it, and everything goes back to the way it was before any of that ever happened. So, um, this variant Loki has set up all these time bombs and it's like, how, how was that going to affect all the same place at once? You can take it back to the stone ages or something. But 
um, they end up actually sending all of these reset bombs to random places, it would seem. Possibly integral events, who knows? I think it wouldn't even have to be that. Just random anywhere is resetting time a certain amount of time and seeing how it plays out a different way would affect anything, I think, pretty much. Um, so so they send it. they send those back to random spots. And looking at the little devices, the TVA can see that timelines are branching out um, from the timeline, the main timeline, right? Which is what they, as a company, are trying to avoid, hence the reset things to kind of erase that change and put things back to the way it's supposed to be. And, you know, there is always this overarching question of why is some why are some things okay and some things are not okay to happen? Who is this big overarching person who is... Um, designating what should be happening in the timeline was what what should not be happening in the timeline. Who is in charge of deciding what you know is okay to happen and what is not? You know which part of the timelines should. You get what I'm saying. It's it's that big overarching question, and that's a lot of where uh, the idea of possibly King showing up comes in because he is a nexus being and um, he does all kinds of timey wimey stuff. So it's very possible, you know that. He is the uh, timekeeper, the the, um, the guys who are in charge of the TVA, the legendary timekeepers, something like that. Um, whatever their names are, I'm, I'm blanking on that right at this moment. Um, but there is also a character who is um, who is the creator of the TVA, um, and that character. Let me see. So just looking at, um, I have an app that has all this information on it, but um, there's a couple of the things that I've been researching. You have Elioth, or Elioth, uh, that is a supreme being of time span who is related to a lot of the Kang stuff that goes on. And uh, the judge who I was talking about, just because I have this here now, um, her name is Ravona Renslayer, and it says specifically... Um, she was romantically pursued, but she's obviously involved with all this time stuff being a judge for the, um, time variance authority. Um, and then let's see here. The character that I'm looking for is called He Who Remains, and that is the creator of the Timekeepers. So it's, it's possible that this He Who Remains is going to pop up, possible that it'll pop up as like Kang or something, but, um, this He Who Remains could be whatever the character is that they're saying is this person who is in charge of deciding what timeline or what events can affect the timeline and what events cannot. But anyway, I just wanted to get all those theories and names out correctly before I move on to uh, what we're going to get next, which is the encounter with the variant Loki they've been searching for. After all these time bombs have been sent out, there's all these people who are uh, destined to die in the tornado who the Loki character has kind of enchanted to uh, be under their control and cause problems for Loki and Mobius um, and, the, and the TVA who are all out here trying to find them. Um, so then, finally, after all this stuff, we finally get the, the character in the hood. We get under their hood. Loki finally encounters himself... Um, and it turns out to be a female version, which of course is not a surprise. We kind of all knew this was coming. Here's the thing. Um, <laughs> Loki mentions that she is using enchantments. Um, and she tells him at a different point in the fight not to call her Loki. She is also blonde. Lady Loki in the comics is usually 
raven hair, just like Loki, with mega horns. Mega other stuff, too, if you, you know what I mean. Um, I have this really bad feeling that Marvel has once again smooshed together two characters, specifically of Lady Loki and Enchantress having their, or other, and are having their version of Lady Loki, this woman, go by the title of Enchantress. Um, I have a bad feeling about that. Further proof that that may be what they're doing um, is at some point, I don't know if it's in the credits or what, I don't remember, um, but at some point we see a file with the name of the Loki variant on it, which is listed as Sylvie Laufey's daughter. Now, obviously, Loki is Loki Laufey's son. That's just the Norse thing they do. Odin's son, Od Angela, is Angela Odin's daughter. Although, if they were to bring her into the MCU, she would be not Odin's daughter. Um... <laughs> um, so you have Sylvie Lushton, who is the kind of character that brings to mind, and she is the second enchantress in the comics. She was given powers by Lady Loki literally for shits and giggles. Um, so it's all right here. It's, it's, it's kind of, it's kind of almost obviously what they're doing. Um, having this Lady Loki go by enchantress instead of Lady Loki, even though she is Lady Loki. And just using the name Enchantress. And so to say, you know, two birds with one stone. I hate that. <laughs> that is such a massive disservice to two characters to mash them into one character. They've done that a ton in the MCU to both men and women. And it's very annoying to see and especially see continuing to happen as a fan of the comics. They also, you know, Disney, Marvel, MCU, whatever, they also have, have a bad habit, it seems, of... In my opinion, in my theory, um, testing characters out in a way by putting elements of them in another character first to see how the audience is going to react to that. Uh, for example, I have been talking about how Carly and uh, Carly, what's her name, Morgenthau from uh, Falcon and the Winter Soldier. She kind of like I for, I thought that she was going to be Sin because her physical appearance was so similar. She's got the red hair. She's got the freckles. She's the right age. But then, no, it's this character who is actually a man from the comics that they gender-swapped and made look, kind of look like Sin. And I would also argue that for Hela and this lady, Loki, they gave us Hela, who was in herself kind of a twist on Hela from the comics and Angela from the comics. Um, and now we're seeing elements of this Hela in this lady, Loki. It's all involved with, you know, the, the uh, Asgardian stuff. Um, Hela in the comics is actually the daughter of Loki and in the legends and everything. Um, and this lady Loki is potentially is a, a Loki and it's, it's all related. Um, but that's just, I kind of get the vibe that they test some things out or possibly it's not that they test things out, but it's just that they reuse characteristics, um, steal them from one character to another and then ignore that when they reuse that character they stole it from. That is also another possibility, and none of these possibilities really look good in my eyes. As for her design, um, this, this Loki very much appears to be toned down. So let's say that. Uh, Lady Loki in the comics is nothing, absolutely nothing, if not flamboyant. Think, think drag Loki, um, but the tits are real. And it's, yeah, this woman, um, in the, in the show, 
was not only blonde with a really shitty hair dye job, but her horns were awkwardly short. Her outfit was more like MCU, like like Norse winter armor um, than like Lady Loki's usual gown and fur-lined cape, you know. Um, big differences. I, I wouldn't even call this an MCU translation of a Lady Loki outfit. Um, now, <laughs> it's not. It's so it's so different. It's kind of like they took the Loki outfit and changed it female, but not really. Um, and that's that's also not what Lady Loki's outfit is in the comics, because she is so extra. Drag Loki, female drag Loki. Come on, that's not what we're getting here. And of course, there is always the uh, option that this Loki, this is what I would prefer, is some kind of offspring of Loki himself, our Loki, potentially, uh, and therefore is showing up as a variant for him. That they think that he's a variant for some reason, or she's a variant for some reason, because she's related to him. I don't know. This stuff could be like that, not not as good as it thinks, um, or possibly someone that Loki imbued with power, or his power, or his own being, or something, uh, kind of like the proper Lady Loki did to, to Sylvie in the comics. Um, we also have yet to see a child of Loki, though we know that there are many in the comics, and as well as the legends they're all based off of. So that would be honestly a much better way for this to go, in my opinion. Um, it's, I feel like <laughs> smushing the two characters together, you just cannot, you can't justify that in any sense. Um, so I'm still clinging to the hope that the Sylvie is going to end up being not actually Lady Loki, not actually the gender-bent Loki, but she will be a completely third character potentially made by Lady Loki or another version of Loki or this Loki, we don't know. Um, and she just goes by Enchantress because she is Enchantress. She's not actually Loki. That is kind of what I'm hoping um, as opposed to it being a female version of Loki who just goes by Enchantress. That would suck. <laughs> um, just kind of wiping away the opportunity to have so much better things by diminuting them. Diminuting them? By taking them down to being something less than they are. <laughs> um, so, you know, um, I just, I just, uh, also, you know, it, I would really love to see the actual Lady Loki in this. How cool would that be now that we've seen this D-list version, <laughs> I guess? No offense to the actress. I definitely don't mean anything against the actress at all. Um, or even necessarily the character. It's not the character's fault that they were written poorly or created poorly, if that's what this is going to end up being. Um, but it's just very disappointing, if that's what it's going to be, that we keep hitting these... Um, the same flaws, it seems. I, I don't really notice it until the past couple of months. Uh, and now with this character and with Carly and... Uh, my husband and I talked and there was a, there's a bunch of them that <laughs> they've kind of two characters mushed into one for the MCU. And it's, it's getting a little annoying. Um, their encounter back to on track, the encounter between Loki and this other person ends with the TVA and Mobius catching up to them. And Mobius, um, is trying to get Loki not to go with her when she time jumps through her little door 
but he does, of course he does. He's Loki. He trusts this unsettling version of himself a lot more than these people who want to wipe him from existence, basically. Um, of course, we don't really know this woman's motives or her intentions, just that she hates the name Loki and potentially him as well which makes his choice somewhat questionable, but then again, he is Loki, he is unpredictable, and he is probably thinking, I am better off with this person who may want to kill me than with these strangers who don't understand me. Um, I guess I can see his logic in a way, be a prisoner or be with a version of yourself that may hate you. That may be better. <laughs> I don't know, but um, I, I, I enjoyed the episode. Don't get me wrong, I really enjoyed the episode. I just feel like that reveal was not only, I mean, the short little horns. I literally went, huh? Like the short little horns. What is that? Please do not tell me this is what your Lady Loki design is. Please no. <laughs> this is not what her character is like. She is a drag queen. Like, <laughs> please give me the proper Lady Loki and let this be someone else. Um, but that's my Loki talk. That's all I got. I am looking forward to the rest of the series. They've been about 50 minute long episodes, 50 to an hour. Um, so it's going to end up being, as they've said, basically about six hours for the season. Now let's go ahead and move on to the comic picks. Um, once again, the comic picks I'm going to be talking about this week are The Mighty Valkyries number three, Demon Days Mariko number one, Luna number five, which is of five, The Many Deaths of Layla Star number three of five, Planet Size X-Men number one, Sonya Versal number five, Supergirl Woman of Tomorrow number one of eight, and then I have a little bitch sesh on Fantastic Four number 33 because they, he, uh, Dan Slott is brutalizing one of my favorite female characters in comics, Victorious. Um, and so I will point out with all logic that I can, um, why that's stupid. <laughs> so starting with the Mighty Valkyries number three, this had a lot happening and I am continually surprised how this is an issue that, or a series that when I finish each issue, I am stoked to be able to talk about it with somebody afterwards, even if it's just to myself on this podcast discussion. Um, it's, it's, it's giving me so much <laughs> and there was especially, I'll, I'll, when I get there, I'll talk about it, but there was especially a bit this week where it even came in and stopped itself from being problematic when I saw it becoming problematic. So, um, really great stuff here. Again, this is by Jason Aaron and Torin Grrrr, last name, um, the Runa story, who is the new Valkyrie, who is based off the MCU Valkyrie, who is based off of... <laughs> the 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 Valkyrie costume that Clea gave Val the other Valkyrie. Um uh she her story is written by the 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 woman Torin. I'm sorry, I don't know how to pronounce your names. Um and then the the other half of the story, which is everybody else basically, um, is by her as well as Jason Aaron. So that's obviously the ruder one's all by her, but I am very curious what elements of the other story were kind of her influence versus Jason Aaron's because they do have different styles. Um, and this is a story that is, I would say much more feminist leaning, um, than a lot of the stuff Jason Aaron has written before. So, uh, really, really enjoyed this. And here is the stuff that happened because it was a lot of stuff that happened. And obviously I'm going to be spoiling all of these issues. 
So in the Runa plot, it's a very basic, it's the most basic side of the plot, the three plots, the several plots in this. Um, Runa escapes the planet that she's on with the Oracle, who is, of course, the father of her um, her former love who has died, who was also a Valkyrie. And she takes him to his home through all this crap they have to go through. And he tells her of the wolf, meaning lore or more, um, has been released. And she kind of freaks out and leaves to go, presumably warn Jane that not to trust this guy. And he calls, uh, the Oracle uses the term Managarm. He calls more than Managarm. So whatever that term is, I did not actually look that up for Norse mythology. I probably should have, honestly. Um, but that is what he's referring to more as. Then we have Carnilla, who is, of course, the wife of Hela, and she is in her oasis, and she has apparently made the three triplets that she stole um, into gods, which is kind of interesting, and Loki shows up to confirm it. Um, he looks um, like um, Keith Richards, <laughs> which I think is pretty funny, and uh, Loki says that Carnilla is creating a pantheon of gods, which is very interesting. Um, she has given Loki um, this, I believe it is a knife, Gleipnir, and the waters of fate in exchange for bringing him Jane's, or for, for him bringing her Jane's hair, which is why he was at that bar in the first issue in disguise in the first place. So we also don't know what is Loki doing with these two items that she has given him. Carnilla used the hair that he gave her to bind the fate of these baby gods to the fate of Jane Foster, making it so that she will always be there to protect them when they need it. Although Loki does point out that they can handle themselves already as toddlers now. They already have, they're, they're growing very quickly. They're very, very smart and they are already be using their powers quite a bit. And their powers are pretty intense. Uh, on the other side of the plot, we have Jane still fighting Craven, who is after the wolf more, of course, being wolf person, two in one soul's body thing. Um, Jane ends up saving more and sends him off while she distracts Craven. This is, of course, the son of Craven. Uh, Craven then gets to liking, or gets a liking to Mr. Horse, who is Jane's, um, yeah, Pegasus. Um, and he tries to shoot him, but Jane stops the bullet and it hurts her a surprising amount because she is, of course, a Valkyrie and kind of immortal or whatever. And um, all of this is happening, timed out, just as Carnilla ties Jane's fate to the baby. So as she um, is getting shot, basically, she also gets a brief vision of these children, although she doesn't understand anything about what this is yet. Later on, we get to see more turning from wolf to man in an alley, pulling a projectile of some kind from his arm, and then he curls up in the corner naked in the rain while the narration is speaking of more them just wanting a life, a life that they've been denied, been denied for far too long is what it says. And this makes me kind of wonder, um, more is two souls, right? I'm wondering, is one wolf and one's human or is it just two souls and that kind of both go back and forth? Um, I don't know if it, I don't know if it matters. I don't know if it's going to be brought up or not, but I'm curious if you happen to know. I don't know why you would, but I'm just curious. Um, then there is Hela, and we uh, finally get to see what she is up to. She goes down to the body of Jormungand, who is 
mispronounce, I'm sure. The Midgard Serpent, who <laughs> somehow got killed in Thor number 10 uh, by a guy who is not as powerful as Thor. And this the, 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 the Midgard Dragon the Midgard Dragon killed or could fight, could beat Thor. So how could this guy beat the Midgard Dragon? I, whatever. It's more of that BS. Uh, Midgard Serpent, excuse me. Um, he somehow got killed anyway. Uh, so he's dead now and Hela comes up to him and takes one of his teeth, making it into a spear and gives it to a little demon lackey of hers, telling him to go give it to Craven to finish the job of killing more. So what is Hela doing with all of this stuff? And what does she have going on with her plans? Uh, sometime around the beginning of this issue, I started to see a kind of very problematic plot having formed, revolving around these three babies. These triplets were stolen from their mother's body at almost full gestation, just like that. And we haven't seen anything of their mother since. And as it turns out, the baby girls are black, leaving room for us to assume that Carnilla just perpetrated a horrific crime on a pregnant black woman, um, which, you know, there's the whole terrible truth that pregnant black women are more at risk than any other um, race because of, gosh, a lot of reasons. But um, this woman will never get any answers and will most certainly be mentally screwed up after God, such a messed up event. So so basically, it looked like they were just going to go ahead and low-key refrigerate their mother, this random lady. And I was not feeling too good about that. Um, it just seemed like something that was an oversight, for sure. <laughs> but then, <laughs> um, finally, at towards at the end of the issue, when Jane gets back to her work as the morgue attendant, her morgue boss, who is aware that she's Valkyrie, introduces her to the baby's mother, who is here looking for answers as to how her 36-week pregnancy triplets just disappeared. Um, okay, cool. We now have some kind of, like, something happening here. This woman is, is going to be an actual character and not just this side thing that was thrown to the side and refrigerated. She's actually getting some character development and growth and stuff. That's, I... I I love seeing the problem starting and seeing them also seeing the problem and addressing it at the same time. Super satisfying. Um, so basically where we're at with the series. Hella is having Craven hunt more and has no idea where her wife is. Carnilla stole triplets from a pregnant woman and is throwing them into a pantheon of gods. Jane saved more from Craven, but um, this, or I guess this time because we don't know what's going to happen with the, the spear, um, but now is on the trail of the babies that are Carnillas. So lots of stuff happened in this issue of the Mighty Valkyries. I really dug it. Um, like I said, I'm just, I'm constantly surprised by how much I love the series. The art on the Jane and Carnilla side of things, uh, Mattia de Yuli, I believe is the name. How is this person not being asked by every comic publisher in history to please, please come work for us. This is amazing art. It's cinematic. You have the, the, the musculature and the bodies. You have Hella looking like 
a skull with skin stretched over her face and this old woman's face, you know? And then you have Jane looking like an absolute beast with the muscles in her arms and her neck. And, and you have, um, gosh, just so much about this more pulling the, the projectile or whatever, whatever out of his arm. Just everything about this art is just so, so stupendous. Um, I, I don't know how this artist is not on everything or being asked to be on everything at least, but it's, it's truly, it's great. Demon Days Mariko number one is the second of five Demon Days books that Peach Promoko is going to be putting out. They are not one shots. Um, not necessarily. They are all number one issues in title, but they will be connected, um, in themes and eventually I'm sure down the line in characters. So, uh, while Demon Days X-Men did have an entirely different cast of characters, there are things that are mentioned from that issue in this issue, and you can really see how that could eventually connect, or will eventually connect down the line. It's also really clear in this issue that Peach Momoko, who is of course the creator of Demon Days, a Japanese uh, artist and writer, um, she is clearly stretching her artistic literary legs, and I am loving it. Um, I'm not sure how well I'll be able to describe why I think that, um, so definitely check the issue out for yourself if you don't know what I'm talking about. But she basically uses dream sequences and flashbacks and visions and things to tell the story and to build the characters, which I really, really enjoyed to see because like I said, it shows me that she is stretching her creative legs. She's trying something new and different, not just for her, I'm sure, but for um, these characters for the industry of the X-Men. This is not normally how we get these stories told, and this is definitely entirely different uh, versions of the characters that we do normally get in those stories. Um, so so I, I feel like we're likely seeing a product um, much, much closer to what her pure idea with no influence would be than seeing her work anywhere else. She doesn't really do interiors anywhere else though, so I guess you can't really argue that too hard, but um, as a creator, I am really glad to see that they seem to be giving her really, really good creative control of this, um, and she is taking full advantage of that, and um, I, I, I would like to say, I would like to think that this is her style coming out. This kind of uh, the, the tonal shift of, uh, X-Men to Mariko was so, so abrupt, not in a bad way, not at all, but it was just, um, it's like a different product altogether, uh, which makes me really excited for what the future of these issues are going to be, um, because gosh, <laughs> If this is if this is the second issue, the first issue was one thing. The second issue is something completely different that feels completely different. The third, you know, is it going to be like a, a, you know, the the John whatever it is eighties teenage movies, and they're going to be going to high school and like I don't know, but it's it's really cool to see that she's trying so many different things. Um, it's and I love I I know I say this a lot, but I absolutely love the like alternate universe stuff, the Elseworlds kind of stuff, you might say, for big two superhero things. And this is so, so fun to read because of that. Um, <clears throat> I think it's also definitely worth noting that um, these are coming out three months apart. Um, I'm not sure 
the time span of what the first issue issue came out compared to when you know what what amount of time she had to prep for it but she had three months to do the second issue um as opposed to the traditional one month while doing other projects that most creators do and she has covers and things that she's doing i'm sure um or i know that she's doing at the same time but having given her that extra time i think that has to do with why this issue seems a lot more involved. Um, I want to say it was longer as well. I'm not entirely sure if it was, but it felt a little bit longer. It definitely had more, um, it definitely had more dialogue for sure. Um, and it was not nearly as straightforward. Whereas Demon Days X-Men was kind of like, it was kind of told like a, um, like a Japanese legend of some kind. Uh, Mariko is much more artistic in the way that it tells the story. Um, in all the best ways. I mean that as, as great compliments. So of course the main focus on this issue is Mariko. Um, she is characterized, she's the red samurai in regular Marvel comics. And here she is characterized as this kind of creepy, unsettling teenage girl who the kids make fun of for being a little bit scary. Uh, but as she's gotten older, she has definitely grown uh, and learned to hold her own. Uh, she dreams of the beast from the mountains that we met in the first issue, the Oni. Um, and it's it's very unsettling dreams of coming face to face with these Oni. Uh, and later on, she actually discovers that she may be the child of one because she was found in the forest next to a dead female Oni with... Um, the mask, I think it was, and the knife. And she has then been raised by her now known to be adopted grandmother who found her there in the forest. Um, so she's potentially a child of an Oni, um, with Black Widow actually as her like nursemaid. Um, and now that Black Widow sees that Mariko has started having these dreams and kind of, you know, what they, what she refers to as remembering who she is, uh, Black Widow goes and reports it to her boss. Now, I'm not sure who her boss is. Um, I'm thinking maybe Emma Frost. It's really hard to tell. She was hooked up to an ivy bag of blood. Um, and we do know that Emma Frost is probably going to appear in this later on. Or that was just a chunk of the story they took out with her and Colossus. Um, I hope it's going to be appearing later on. I don't know. With Psy, maybe. But whoever this, whoever this woman is... Um, the Black Widow goes and talks to her and she says, okay, you know, initiate whatever the plan is. So then Black Widow goes back and reveals herself to Mariko and her adopted grandmother, but in turn, or in time, <laughs> decides not to take them or kill them or whatever it was that her mission was here to do. Then we get a new character who is Peach Romoko's version of Nightcrawler. <laughs> he looks a lot like, um like Flagman, if the bits of fabric were all like dark blue grays. <laughs> you can tell that he's Nightcrawler by he the the, vis the sound effects when he comes in, it says Banff, and then his coloring and his, his kind of facial features even are all very much reminiscent of Nightcrawler. And I actually saw um, this morning on an Instagram post, she did write about the character and uh, confirmed that he is Nightcrawler. So in case you weren't sure, uh, that is definitely him. And Black Widow ends up holding him off at the issue while Mariko gets away, uh, while she is given from her adopted grandmother her apparent mother's uh, jawbone armor that was on all of the marketing for this issue, and the knife. I think two things that she was found with when she was born. Um, 
so more stuff to delve into this, of course. Um, lots of lots of questions. I don't think we're going to see much more of Black Widow, but uh, she kind of did her role, and now Mariko is going to go off and probably run into Sai or something. <laughs> I don't know, but this... Um, Everybody says it, so it feels kind of pointless to say, but it is so true that the the interiors on these, the art is just is just absolutely phenomenal. Um, Peach Romoko did, I think she put in a ton more work into this issue than she did into the first one uh, for the X-Men. So, uh, oh gosh, I'm excited to see what could possibly be in store for the next issues. I think we're going to have uh, Cindy Moon Silk as another character going forward. Um, not sure. We'll get that confirmed when we hear about it more in a couple of months, I'm sure. But uh, in any case, this is so much fun, and I am so excited to see more of Pichamoko's Marvel X-Men universe. Now, the finale of Luna was this week, and that's one that is a little bit harder to talk about because it is such a artistically based comic. Um, and so a lot of the detail that may not make as much sense with just narration, um, fills in with the art. So, well, I'll try to do this as best as I can, but this was really, really amazing. I, there's several, gosh, there are a number of pages that I would pay good money to have as a blown up print. That would be just, oh, some of these pages are actual works of art. It is, it is amazing and beautiful. Um, so the last issue of Luna ended with Teresa, who was of course Teresa Luna, poisoning herself and her blood so that the cult leader would drink it and drink her blood the way that he does and get poisoned. Um, so then she of course is also starting to die as well. Uh, this issue starts back up with her being saved by the blood of the, glue, the blue um, god-man person. Uh, who's in the cave. She looks in his eyes and drinks his blood and suddenly knows his name, Ahoma. And there's actually a really cool bit of art um, of Luna's lips, Teresa's lips, sounding out his name um, in a way that you can actually read her lips on the page. Really, really cool uh, the way that, that Maria LaVey has set all this stuff up. The cult leader, meanwhile, is of course slowly dying uh, on the floor of his shack when the women of the cult then break in, frothing at the mouth for his blood-like uh, crazed vampires. Um, and by that I mean they have fully transitioned into basically, basically vampire creatures now. They attack the cult leader, try to drink his blood, but it is poisoned because of Teresa and it makes them sick too. So they follow him into the cave, sensing the power of Teresa and the god inside hoping that will save them and, you know, feed them and everything. And so they, they charge to him when they see him sitting there, but all he has to do is lift a single hand and tell them that he frees them from their pain. And they just stop and shrivel and shrink all the way down to skeletons and then dust. Uh, Luna walks off. Uh, Teresa Luna. She's She's gone off to find the cult leader. He She finds him and he says that she betrayed him after he gave her his gift. But she now knows better that his divinity was plundered from the real thing. And I think that was actually more or less what she actually said. Um, and she takes from him Ahoma's eye, which is, of course, the eye that this cult leader kept around his neck to keep this god-man under his thumb. Uh, Teresa brings it back to him and he tells her to eat it, which is disgusting. 
But she does, of course. And she transforms into her true form, a many-armed goddess of the desert. And then she, like, kind of comes back down into her humanoid form. And her skin is pink. And her hair is bright, like, bright pinky red. Um, which is, like, the reverse of his everything being shades of blue. So that's kind of cool. They embrace and he calls her Miracle Moon. I have this out in front of me because, my god, the art on this... Um... I don't, I don't even really know how to describe this properly, um, but trippy, <laughs> beautiful beyond, beyond words. Um, there's a panel of the two of them kissing and there is, uh, a snake that goes from green to brown and it's coloring and there's green roses and blue and pink and purple eyes and stars and purple moons and things. It's, it's just... Her color palette with her ability to use symbols, like you could, you'll turn the page and then you have the, basically it's what's, what it's revealing is that they are the representations of night and day, always meant to come back together, always meant to meet no matter how separate they are. Um, and you have, oh my gosh, the symbols in this, you have the flowers, you have the stars, you have the sun and the moon, you have the heart with the eye and the flames and the thorns surrounded by roses, sunflowers versus moonflowers. And, oh, it is just absolutely beautiful. Um, and the fact that she as the pink being is the moon, he as the, or I guess, I guess night, and he as the bluish green being is the day. I think that's kind of a cool um, reversal of what we would normally see. So the cave ends up collapsing and the two of them come out of it perfectly unharmed. Um, it's, it's basically, basically they, they were, uh, Teresa Luna was his soulmate. Their representations of the sun and moon bonded together forever, destined to come together. Um, and they're going to have all of eternity to, um, to be together. And it actually ends with, she asks him about this, this, um, she says, my beloved, was that the eye of Lachesis? It wasn't really an eye, was it? And he says, ah, that the answer to that is a good story. And she says, tell me on some occasion. He says, of course, my Luna, we have a long, long time. And they float off into the sky together. God damn it, if that isn't the coolest shit. <laughs> um, Maria LaVey, I am a lifelong fan. Please make more comics because I am waiting Take your time, though, because your art, I can see you do a great job. Take your time. I trust you. Moving on now to The Many Deaths of Layla Starr, another one that, oof, this was, <laughs> this issue, my guys, woo, um, all good things, all good things. Uh, <laughs> this entire issue is told from the point of view and the narration of a cigarette. Just gonna say that again. This issue is told from the narration of a cigarette. It's the fact that they could even make that work. Holy hell. <laughs> Just wow. And again, all good things. This was amazing in the best way possible. I'm not not amazing like funny and making fun. I mean this was this was truly genius. Um, it's like when Matt Fraction and David Aha did that, they, well, they did the Hawkeye issue from Lucky's point of view, and then they also did the one with, uh, I think they won the Eisner for the one with, um, with Clint when he didn't have his hearing aid, so he was, he kind of was deaf for most of the issue. Um, it's one of those things that 
who would have thought of doing it that way except for these creators? Um, it's a truly remarkable way of telling the story. Um, just I just consider me supremely impressed to be able to tell a story from the perspective as a cigarette of a cigarette as it is lit, burning, and dying out is incredible talent and the the thought that had to go into it. Oh, additionally, you know, on top of just how genius it is of an idea in general, there is the whole idea of the culture of cigarettes in many Asian cultures and gosh, a lot of cultures I should say is very strong. Um, so it's appropriate to make something inanimate like a cigarette uh, the narrator, as it does take up such an integral part of daily lives. Um, and also, of course, the art blew my mind completely as well. Uh, Romvi is the writer, but Philippa Andrade, sorry if I said that wrong, does the art. <laughs> um, and it is so, so impressive. Um, there is somebody listed as a color assistant, and I'm kind of curious as to what that job entailed specifically for this issue, because there are several pages of this issue where the color actually stopped me in my tracks with how brilliant of a, of a panel, of a page that I was looking at. In, and in combination with the line work, which itself is unique and light and precise, and incredibly stylized at the same time, the art of this issue, I would argue, has been the best of the three issues. And it still blows my mind. We're only three issues into this, and I am this invested. Uh, <laughs> this, I, I can't get over just the brilliance of the mechanism of how to tell this story in this particular issue. Um, basically, to tell you what happened in the issue... Uh, exactly. It was, it was basically just the boy who um, is going to end death and Layla who is death reborn end up at the same party. Um, they end up uh, smoking this cigarette together. Um, and then at the end of the issue, because of course it seems that all of these issues are going to end with Layla dying once more. <laughs> the issue ends with she drops the cigarette butt and the apartment burns down, and the only death was a person um, who was asleep on the couch. And you find out at the end of the issue, of course, that was Layla. <laughs> she died in that fire on the couch. It was the only, the only thing that happened there. <laughs> it's it's such a good issue, and the way that he makes these creative endings, even though at this point we know she's gonna die, the way that the creative endings keep coming. Um, through the pattern and gosh there's just so much good stuff to be said about this the the crossover of um indian culture of east indian culture with american comics and american storytelling um explaining the connection between the factors in the story and oh this 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 whole thing man i'm i'm like sliding my hands down my face because i don't even know what to say to make you convinced this is going to be it's going to be five issues so this is three of five uh i'm obviously going to be buying every issue and i'm probably going to be getting like if it comes out with hardcover i'm going to be getting it collected easily on hardcover um because this is already going down as one of my all-time favorite mini series 
easily. Um, and I'm just going to recommend this to everybody and lend them my copy of it and make them read it. Um, and it makes me feel better <laughs> that Rom B is the writer of this and Catwoman because I've been buying the Catwoman just for covers. And now I can say that I'm buying it because I support Rom B, even though I don't really like the interior of what's actually happening. You know, I like his other stuff, so I can say that's not just for the covers, right? I just like the Jenny Frizen covers, but this Many Deaths of Layla Star, Jesus. Just, just, wow. Planet Size X-Men number one. I know I had gone off and on and on about the, uh, the whole thing about they're comparing it to Giant Size X-Men number one, which is clearly a bad idea. It's clearly not going to be, like, nothing has been that valuable since that, pretty much. So, um, and I thought about it a lot this week after, especially after having read Planet Size X-Men and going back over my knowledge of the era when Giant Size X-Men came out. Um, the thing about Giant Size X-Men number one being a massive success was that it didn't actually establish anything new. Um, establishing things that are new only leaves room for it to be torn down later, especially when it comes to the X-Men, who kind of have that being the integral cornerstone of their identity. <laughs> um, no, Giant Size X-Men was more like, in comparative, like, all new, all different Avengers. Uh, you're introduced to some new characters and some known ones, making a new version of a team that we've already had established with a different set of characters for a good while now, but now it's new and it's different. So, honestly, Giant Size X-Men number one, closer to compare to all new, all different Avengers than uh, Planet Size X-Men number one. Um, and it's it's definitely not going to go down the way that um, Giant Size X-Men number one did as well, because we kind of already know, based on the substance of this comic, what is going to happen, uh, and that is that none of this is going to last. <laughs> Uh, so basically what this whole issue is, it's called Planet Size X-Men because the big reveal of the Hellfire Gala is that the mutants made Mars into a livable paradise for the Arakan mutants. Now, I do have some things that I'm curious about how that works, claiming a planet in our solar system that has two rovers on it that they destroyed. Um, the whole idea behind it to what I can understand is that why they chose Mars as opposed to a different planet is because we know that Mars at one point was a planet that held life um, and had water and ice and things like it, like that on it. Um, so with that idea, they were able to um, contort it to be a planet that can once again sustain life in a very good way. Um, so I, the whole idea, I will get into that a little bit more in a second, but the whole idea of them having chosen Mars specifically is a bit tricky, I think, but I don't, I don't know. Maybe I'm just thinking about it too much. Um, I do really enjoy how the various mutants powers were showcased in making this happen. Uh, almost like a math equation being explained. It was very similar to, I believe it was X-Men number 10 or 11. I don't quite remember. Uh, where it was the one of the only Empire tie-ins that they had in the main X-Men series, where Magneto basically comes out into the battle on Krakoa, uh, which is the, against the whatever the Empire plant aliens were, and basically just like says, all right, uh, here's my team, do your part, boom, battle done. And this was very similar to that when they're building the planet, they use specific mutants who had powers that would specifically do certain things to help set up this planet to be sustaining life again, just like how the five 
um, have the specific powers that allow, uh, enable them to continue with the resurrection protocols and bring their mutants back to life. Um, that similar way of like adding the exact mutants, the, it's, it's like, it is like an equation. Um, I kind of enjoy that in an odd way. I got really good at math proofs because I had to take that class twice or algebra, geometry, whatever it was. I think it was geometry. Um, but yeah, it's, it's just like a math proof. <laughs> so we get some new characters who we honestly probably won't be seeing much of again, but it's always fun to, uh, getting new mutant powers and abilities explained. And they'd had some really fun ones here and able to make Mars a livable planet, some really creative stuff. And I definitely enjoyed that. Um, Rocco being brought to earth with Krakoa after X of Swords um, or to be with Krakoa after X of Swords, I should say, was apparently only two weeks ago. Um, and so the millions of mutants suddenly arriving on a landmass in the South Pacific with these other mutants who they already know about, millions more, um, definitely caused alarm among the non-mutant cu countries and people, uh, hence the need for uh, finding a place for the Arako mutants to have on their own. So that is why they terraform or whatever, um, Mars get it to be able to sustain life again, and they move Arako onto Mars. Um, I, re I do really like this, as it was the obvious next step in the world of the mutants, literally. <laughs> Um, but like I said, there is no way that this is going to last. Just like how we know Krakoa and the Resurrection Protocols won't last, neither will this Planet Araco, which is what they're calling it. Um, and the last thing, or the, <laughs> not the last thing, but I think one thing that is very interesting um, is that the mutants have declared Planet Araco, as it is now, as the headquarters kind of of the solar system, giving uh, a specific place called Lake Hellas to uh, be a location to hold peaceful meetings from beings across the galaxy. Um, this is no doubt going to be seen as a massive ego move, which is obvious it is a massive ego move, um, but it also must be destined to work out as a political destination, um, or else why would they even bother putting it in the comic? They're not going to put it in the comic and then Earth is going to be like, yeah, we're just not going to do that. And then they're never going to talk about it. That's, that doesn't seem a point. Um, especially in the Hickman era of things, um, he didn't write this, but he is still in charge. So I'm going to credit his thought process to a lot of this ill. Um, it is also possible, before I wrap up the X-Men stuff today, um, it is also possible that Krakoa will fail, but Araka will not. Um, you know, but whenever the Hickman era is over and his hand is no longer leading this, this reign of X-Men stuff, uh, all bets are off. Once he's gone, once he's out of power, unless there's some deal that he somehow makes with Marvel that they're never going to do, let anybody destroy that, it's going to be destroyed probably first thing. <laughs> So Universal number five, this has been such a fun series and I'm so glad that I was able to find all the issues so far. It is the end of this arc and we are getting at least two more issues, which will apparently follow Sonia Noir as she goes through various mysteries in the Sonyaverse. Um, the turning point of the battle of the Sonyas in this issue was when they all found out that breaking their vows to their various uh, gods of this many-faced god alien creature uh, would not rid them of their powers and gifts that they were given. So they all just started being like, oh, screw you and uh, battling together a lot harder using their proper powers and things. Purple Sonia even comes back with a proper mech 
uh, proper flesh and organic kind of creature instead of the just pure bot that she had before. And they end up being the ones to fight Planet Sonia. So um, eventually Dina's Demon Sonia says, you know, screw it uh, and lets all the Sonias go back to their own realms from her hell realm with their bodies intact, meaning that even the ones who died in the battle here can go back to their lives. And then there's a really funny bit with Lacrosse Sonia, who, if you remember, Demon Sonia tried to kill earlier. Lacrosse Sonia drops a spaceship on her. <laughs> and that's pretty funny. Although Demon Sonia is on the cover of the next two issues, so it's possible we're going to see her again. Um, it is all a bit ridiculous and wonky and kind of stupid, but god damn it if it isn't why I'm reading it. <laughs> uh, Red Sonia ends up saving the day on the moon with the fight of this, like, god creature thing, Skathatch or whatever. Um, and even her husband gets to come back in the end. So for once, Asonia gets a happy ending. They're going to spend the rest of their days fighting the people that Sonia has already killed in her life who have come back through those same portals for Demon Sonia. Uh, but as she says, she did it once. It'll be easier for the two of them to do together. Oh, it's cute. <laughs> All right, we're, we're almost done with the comic picks here, so bear with me. We have Supergirl, Woman of Tomorrow is the first issue of an eight-issue arc by Tom King and Bilquis Evely. Ively, don't know how to say it, I'm sorry. It is really good. I love this. This was um, absolutely gorgeous artwork, and it was telling the story in a little bit of a different way than um, we normally see with Tom King. Well... I guess Rorschach, I read the first issue of Rorschach and decided I was going to wait till it all came out and read them as a chunk because there's just too many things going on for me to read right now. Um, so some stuff I just save for later. Um, but this this kind of, I feel like it gave it a little bit of a different setup than the normal uh, Tom King comics. A little bit. Um, so we start off, it is Kara's 21st birthday. Of course, Kara Zor-El is who I'm talking about. Supergirl. She went to some random backwoods planet with a red sun so that she can get drunk at their shitty old bars. <laughs> Um, because that is Kara's 21st birthday, and by damn, she's not going to be able to get drunk like every other person on the planet that she was raised on for a part of her life. Um, it's, it's, I'll get into that in a second, but it's, it's very interesting, the dynamic that we're already seeing, um, for Kara and the rest of her life. So there's this man called Krem, and he has killed, uh, a girl's father. Her name is Ruthie. Uh, he's killed her father and left her alone with her mother and her six brothers. So Ruthie being um, the strong, independent woman that she is, she takes this... Oh, she's the youngest in her family, actually. She takes the sword that killed her father, which was left behind, and goes to find someone to help her claim revenge because she knows she can't do this on her own. What's interesting about the story is that it starts with spoilers for the ending or at least somewhere further along, saying that Kara will eventually kill Krem before Ruthie can ask why he left his sword behind after he killed her father. So we go into this knowing, in part, what we will see happen down the road, just kind of wondering what the events will be to get there, and I guess in this case what will happen after. Um, so it's not so much a how is this all going to pan out, it's a how are we going to get to this point and how is that going to affect things that are going to happen uh, beyond there. Uh, but for now, we are able to see Ruthie go to the same bar that Kara is getting drunk in, and she tries to get this cell sword to help her out, um, 
and he just kind of ends up roughing her up and stealing her sword, trying to steal the sword that killed her father. He is stopped by Kara, who, even drunk and under a red sun, can easily beat this loser. <laughs> um, and he's a big dude, so... And, and he kind of chops her, not chops her up, but he, he stabs her a little bit. So um, she, she while she is under the red sun, it clearly its effects are not as strong as uh, like a Kryptonian sun. Uh, unfortunately, uh, when she heads back to her ship, Ruthie follows and so does the man with the bar who he gives a heads up to Krem telling him what's going on, that this little girl is out here trying to find cell swords to help her kill him. Uh, so as Ruthie is trying to stop Kara from leaving, uh, Krem shoots Kara with an arrow in the gut. She ends up getting shot a few more times before she finally falls, and Crypto is shot a couple times as well in her in his attempts to protect her. The issue ends up um, le- ending with Krem stealing Kara's ship, and with Ruthie on the ground holding a bleeding out Kara and Crypto. <laughs> Uh, so it's not things are not off to a good start. Uh, Story wise, it's a great start, but for Kara, it's not looking so good. <laughs> Obviously, we're gonna see whatever the process it is it takes them to get out of the situation. Uh, but something else that I would like to note <laughs> is how this is Kara's birthday, and she has chosen to be by herself off planet, trying to get ludicrously drunk all on her own. I think that says a lot, Clark. Uh, the one person who could somewhat relate to what she's feeling today isn't anywhere to be found, and odds are, um, doesn't it's, odds are he's not he, he's not not here because she's asked him not to be. He's probably not here because he didn't couldn't be bothered, <laughs> with lack of a better term. Uh, that's just kind of my thought about that. Um, so. Um, <laughs> I got a little off track, off track there. Uh, so odds are, uh, this is a somewhat normal birthday for Kara spent alone. It all kind of ties into her frustration of being herself, being the woman who's had the life that she's had. And I'm really looking forward to see other ways that she is characterized and how this kind of darkness within her is going to come out further along or as we go along, I guess. To wrap up the pick list this week, uh, this was not a comic pick, but I just want to point out how stupid it was. Fantastic Four number 33. I will be cussing probably in this. Just be aware. Um, the first thing, this is the wedding of Doom and his daughter figure. So the first thing I have to say, apparently Johnny Storm did have sex with the Victorious in the last issue. If you recall, you the art and the storytelling was so, so bad we couldn't even tell if they had sex or if he was just trying to get into her bed. It was, you couldn't tell if he was getting into bed or getting out of it. It was not made at all clear. Um, so him having sex with Victorious, not only super out of character, um, but Johnny's like soulmate is like right around the corner at the wedding. Like, or I guess that was before, but like, um, I don't really understand. why he uh Dan Slott is characterizing Johnny as being not only a cheater but um basically will screw anything that lives um and now he's made victorious the sappy um sad idiot for lack of a better term 
Um, it's super out of character for both of them. And to make matters worse, after all this is kind of revealed, Johnny becomes a love-struck fool um, and tries to, like, talk to her and be like, we had a connection. What the hell? Where is this coming from? And then Zora ends up feeling guilty for some goddamn reason. And she stops the whole wedding, mid-wedding, mid-ceremony. And she tells Doom in front of everyone at the wedding that she had sex with Johnny Storm. And then, of course, Doom loses it and starts trying to attack the Fantastic Four. I'm sorry, are we in 19... I'm sorry, are we in 1840? Like, wake up and smell the coffee, my man. We are no longer here to judge women about not being pure on their own fucking wedding day. Um, Doom as certainly should not care, especially if all of this marriage shit is entirely platonic, and even then, it's still super creepy that all of this is even happening at all. Again. Um, so not only do you have a strong female character with strong character suddenly pleading with her, like, master for forgiveness for letting another man fuck her, you have... And apparently she regrets that now or something. You have her father figure who was about to marry her becoming enraged by that fact at both her and the man in question. Come the fuck on, Dan Slot. Why are you doing this? This is this is legitimately bad writing. He did get COVID this year, didn't he? I wonder if he had COVID when he was writing this, and that would explain a lot. In which case, editorial, where the fuck are you? You're the ones who are supposed to be stopping these bad, genuinely bad stories from getting out. But, okay. Um, yeah, let's move on to things that, oh gosh, we just have Superman and Lois's next shit. Okay, well, <laughs> Superman and Lois episode 10. This, this, uh, this show has dropped off a lot since coming back from their hiatus. Uh, and they came back in May, I believe. Uh, with the exception, kind of, of Lois, who has had, um you know, a somewhat good or well-written plot in some of these episodes, at least. Um, but it's the dialogue has been just actually trash. Um, to make matters worse, in this episode, I know in the last episode we found out that Edge was, was a Kryptonian and possibly Clark's brother, and here we find out that he's Clark's half-brother, son of his mother from, I guess, a previous marriage or a secret love affair or something, and he was sent to Earth just like Clark, but he landed uh, some in England and they were all like, ah, kill the witch or whatever, and just had a really bad time. Uh, but the thing that really gets me about this episode, the thing that really gets me where I'm kind of like, I may stop watching this show. Um, he puts, you know how he can put people like Kryptonians essences into human bodies or whatever now? Um, he puts his and Clark's mother their essence, or whatever, into Lana Lang, Clark's high school girlfriend, who he definitely boned. Um, yeah. I hope you see why that's weird. <laughs> as she comes and she talks to Clark and as his mother, and she's Lana Lang's body, but Clark's m birth mother. Um, it's, it's just really weird. I, I, I might stop watching soon, like I said. I, I cannot believe how how severely the series has dropped off now something that's been kind of funny um i've i've a number of times on a number of occasions now i have uh asked kind of generally if anybody had knows anything about what happened to that marvel medieval event that was going to happen in december of 2020 
It was um, Tom Taylor, who was great with all these, like, AU, Elseworld type things. And he's been over at DC, so they were like, hey, come come do one of those for us. And what he came up with is, like, medieval thing. But then they had the one ad for it, or whatever it was, that was com- saying, coming in December 2020. And then they never said anything else come for it. And I recently kind of remembered about that and was like, gee, I really was excited for that. What the hell happened? Well, guess what, boys and girls and theys? Uh, This event is back on for September 2021. It is back. It is happening. It is called Marvel Dark Ages. And I am stoked. It's still going to be, as far as I know, by Tom Taylor. You know, it could possibly not be because they haven't actually said anything. Um, Patrick Gleason, I believe, was the one doing the promo art. I don't honestly remember. It was some Spider-Man guy. Um, but they haven't said anything about the creative team. So it's possible that Tom Taylor is not actually going to be writing this version. Um, I've also seen some critiques that people think that, um, this is Marvel saying, hey, Tom Taylor, come do Deceased for us. That's obviously not an accurate comparison because what came before Deceased? Marvel fucking zombies. (laughs) Um, and also, how does medieval stuff have anything to do with DCs? DCs wasn't medieval themed. It wasn't Dark Ages themed. It was apocalypse themed in a completely different way. So, in any case, this is going to be exciting. September 2021. That is three months from now. We will be having the Marvel Dark Ages event at long last. And I'm excited for it. Uh, and I also want to talk about the future of Castlevania. Um, Castlevania has some toxic history with what's creator Warren Ellis, which we won't get into right now. Um, but this, uh, it was very successful in its Netflix series and Netflix has recently announced that they are actually going to do a new Castlevania series following entirely new characters. Uh, it will be a, sp- a spinoff focused on Maria Renard and Richter Belmont the son of Sifa and Trevor. And it's going to be set in 1792 France during the French Revolution. Um, that's that's like 50 or something years after where they're at right now. Um, obviously, uh, she is pregnant and they're going to have their kid and have the town of Belmont, um, I'm sure, will be where they are in France. Uh, the showrunners are going to be Sam Dietz, Adam Dietz, and Kevin Cold don't know anything about them. So if you do, good for you. (laughs) Um, In any case, this is, uh, I had heard heard rumors that it was going to be several generations down the line. Um, So what I'm kind of hoping is that this is going to be the first following generation after uh, Trevor and what's her name. And then they're going to have more generations following down the line till they get up to like modern times. I, that's that's what I would want to have happen. I think that would be really cool, but uh, we'll have to wait and see like with everything else. And finally, I'll wrap up with the two things that are less related to current events. Well, this Batman one is, but then we'll go into explanation of Juneteenth, which is current events, but not comics events. Um, so there was something that went out. Um, I guess it was like the Hollywood Reporter or somebody reported on it. Uh, apparently, um, there was going to be... Well, we're not sure if it's still going to be in there. Apparently, what we know is DC asked... The Harley Quinn animated show Showrunners, which, by the way, I'm a massive fan of that show. It had me laughing my tits off. Um, I may be cussing a lot on this portion because the subject matter kind of requires it. Um, But it was... uh, Apparently, DC came to the Harley Quinn showrunners and asked them to remove a scene that featured Batman performing oral sex on Catwoman... (laughs) 
they wanted that scene gone. Now we don't know. I don't think we know if that scene is going to end up appearing in it or what. But um, I know that DC has been asked by pretty much every news outlet on Earth for a statement, and they have been zipped shut. Whoever put that, whoever let that bit of news leak, they asked the showrunners not to put that in Harley Quinn is probably fired um, because they are. I mean, nobody sees that. The reason that they were. Okay, let's 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 give the other half of the story. The other half of the story is the reason that they wanted that removed is because superhero quote superheroes don't do that unquote. So that's that's the problematic part. Okay, um, regardless of the fact that this is an R-rated adult animation show um, themed towards women audience members, wouldn't a scene of Batman eating out Catwoman be totally appropriate for that. <laughs> um, also, I would just like to point out that the DC was fine with Batman having sex with a 19-year-old Barbara Gordon on the rooftop, and he was also okay with Harley Quinn low-key uh, molesting Nightwing as she ties him to a bed. Um, but, you know, as soon as it becomes about a woman's pleasure um, and not, like, a scandal about a dude then, like, why would they want that in the movie, right? A show in this case. Um, it also perpetrates the idea, the very, very toxic, uh, patriarchal, uh, misogynistic idea that um, women's genitalia is are dirty uh, for any way, or rather um, confusing, unworthy of being touched, uh, not as good as a penis. It perpetrates that idea. It also perpetrates the idea that um, oral sex is something that a man is to have put on him and not have to do anything in return uh, because he is owed that and the woman is not or the partner is not. Um, and gosh, I could go on for a little while about this, couldn't I? <laughs> um, there have been a lot of people who have come out of the woodwork to, to add their two cents to this. Um, you know, comparing other superheroes and basically what, you know, what it, what it comes down to, in my opinion, do you really think Selena Kyle would date anybody for any amount of time who did not like, as a rule, go down on women? Hell no, she wouldn't. <laughs> that would be not her at all. So, you know, he does. Batman does. I, he he would not have a have a sex life of his own if he didn't because it's it's a modern era, guys. Uh, on that note, a little bit, but extremely off related. Why is it that men are disgusted by that, but lesbians aren't? You know, some straight men are disgusted by that. I thought you guys were supposed to like that that stuff. Why do lesbians like it more than straight men? Because it's not self serving. Anyway, moving on to Juneteenth. I'll do my best here, so I hope that um, everything makes sense. Um, taken pretty much from several articles that I have um, researched to make sure I'm using the right verbiage here. Uh, June, Juneteenth is the combination of June and 19th. So it takes place June 19th, and it marks the day in 1865 when the last group of enslaved people in Galveston, Texas finally learned that they were free from the institution of slavery. This was, of course, 1865, which is two and a half years after Abraham Lincoln signed the Emancipation, Pro Emancipation Proclamation. Um, it was also two months after the Civil War finally ended. Um, so that it, it took... The, the, the date of... Um, 
it's it's Juneteenth represents freedom and it represents how emancipation was delayed for enslaved people in the deepest reaches of the Confederacy um, because basically no one really cared enough to make sure that they got that information to the people who it actually affected. Um, so saving, um, saving, I guess you could say independence day for Juneteenth is appropriate from a lot of perspectives because that is the day that all Americans were truly free as opposed to, um, the, you know, the, the nation of the United States of America being separated from the nation of England. Um, and that's, that's pretty much it, honestly. Um, I, I, I feel like that's a pretty, a good enough explanation for people to understand, but I don't think it, it was so short. <laughs> These things aren't as complicated as you think. It's, it's basically just a celebration of all people in the United States being free, um, including the ones who were f formerly slaves and the families of slaves and everything like that. So, um, that's why it's an important holiday. That's why it's really relevant that Biden signed that into proclamation or whatever, uh, the past couple of days, because, um, while the 4th of July celebrates our independence from England, the freedom of all Americans cannot be celebrated until all Americans are free. And that was not until June 19th, 1865. Um, so that is why we celebrate Juneteenth. That is what Juneteenth means. Um, and that is why I'm talking about it. That wraps up this week's episode of Sensational She Geek Live from Yancey Street. I cannot wait to turn my AC on because it is hot in here and the AC is really loud and I have been sweating during this recording session so much. <laughs> if it is hot where you are, stay cool this week, get sweaty about comics, but try not to actually lose that much hydration via your um, skin very much. And drink water, you hippies. Hydrate, hippies. Um, I love talking about comics with you, even though I get no feedback. I love, I love pretending that there's people listening and enjoying what I say. <laughs> Give me some feedback, yo! So I know I'm not just talking to myself. <laughs> uh, in any case, um, that is everything that I had to discuss today. I went through my socials at the beginning of the episode. Um, so that is pretty much it. I'll be back on Monday, which is going to be the 21st of June, where I will be discussing things that are coming up in the following uh, day's uh, comic book poll list for that coming week. So uh, stick around for that. I will also be discussing the Bad Batch episode, which is premiering today on Disney+. Plus. I accidentally saw a spoiler for part of that, so I'm kind of sad, but it's a cool thing, so you're going to like it if you haven't seen the episode yet. And if you did see it, you know what I'm talking about, I think, maybe, probably. <laughs> uh, so in any case, um, enjoy the various nerdy geeky things that we have access to in this modern era. Um, be kind to nerds everywhere because everybody has a different perspective than you and, um, it may seem wild and crazy, but that's their truth and that's their life. And as long as they're not hurting anybody who honestly gives a shit. Um, so on that lovely note, have a great week. Try not to get overheated or dehydrated or too cold if that's something that's happening somewhere. Um, so yeah, peace out. Have a good week. Stay sweaty.